Hey everybody, and welcome to another installment of Innovation Crush, but this is different. Um, this is our first ever Fast Company Fridays. Uh, so once a month, we're gonna come to you with some amazing people from Fast Company. Uh, and right now I'm here with Anissa, and we debated on how we were gonna pronounce your last name. So let's, let's, let's get into that for a quick second. Okay, I wouldn't say debate, I'm just saying that. <laughs> it was uh, a little bit of a debate. <laughs> when people ask me how to pronounce my last name, I ask them if they want the Western pronunciation or the Indonesian pronunciation, because most people cannot pronounce the Indonesian pronunciation, so I give them the Western version. Challenge accepted. Okay, so the Western version is Purbasari. Purbasari, I can do that. Yes. The Indonesian version, I'm going to say my whole name because it sounds a bit weird to say just my last name is Anissa Purbasari. Anissa Purbasari. Close enough. It's Close good. Enough. You rolled your R's. Right. <laughs> a lot of people can't roll their R's. Well, the, and you also have a New Zealand accent, exactly. so, which makes it even more special. I know. I know. Uh, I have a... And apparently now, um, I think there are certain words that I've had to say that aren't a New, a New Zealand accent, because when I go to a restaurant and, you know, the service can't understand me, if I say water, then I have to say, oh, I want water. You're like, what are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's our first joke. First joke. So you are the assistant editor for Fast Company's work-life section. I am. Uh, you cover everything from productivity to the future of work. Yes. And I'm also a good reader, as you can, as you can see. <laughs> um, so one of the things I thought about as we were getting together uh, is that I'm very tired. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and you recently did some stuff on sleep. I had uh, looked into a sleep study that Fitbit had done a few years ago, a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, but you have a, a really interesting article on that. T t walk us a little bit through what you learned about sleep and its effect on creativity and innovation. Yeah, I mean, sleep affects everything that you do. I've done lots of articles on sleep, but I think you're talking about a recent one I did, which is about um, just, you know, this misconception that everyone needs eight hours of sleep, and that's just not true. Um, it all depends on what experts call the chronotype. Again, I just want to say that, you know, this, this is all, I'm saying this um, based on the experts that I've talked to, so it's not my opinion or based on my expertise. Thus, Other you, people's you've expertise. absorbed expertise. Yeah, yeah. so um, everyone has what is called a chronotype. There are different, there are different categorization depending on who you talk to, because different experts have done different studies on it. But essentially, you're either a morning person, kind of somewhere in between, or an or a night owl, um, you know, a lark or an owl is what they usually call it. And that affects when you should go to bed, when you should wake up, and just also when you should exercise and eat. And that all affects how you sleep. And when you don't get, when you don't get the sufficient amount of sleep or you're not getting enough deep sleep, which they call REM, I'm not going to get into the science there, then you really feel it. I think there was a research that shows that if you miss kind of half an hour, that's equivalent to, you know, you lose. I can't remember what the, um, how much you lose in productivity, but your concentration levels and your creativity level just, your concentration levels <laughs> and your creativity just goes down a lot. Although I have also heard that sometimes when you're sleepy, it could be a good time to do creative work as long as it's not one that requires deep concentration. Yeah, there was something about um, sleep and delirium, like the, this, like a thin line between the more, de as you approach delirium, you kind of become a little bit more creative. 
It's yeah. the same thing as like microdosing on certain, you know, chemicals yeah. and drugs. Yeah, I have heard of that. Someone also said that um, I, there's also been research showing that sometimes sleep deprivation is equivalent to being drunk. And I guess sometimes people will get more creative when they're drunk. I don't so. think so. <laughs> it's I'm, not, I've it's had not both. great. <laughs> it's not great when they're driving, but maybe, you know, <laughs> when you're just kind of sitting at your desk, you sometimes do him an epiphany. But it's not great for deep work and it's concentration. Better, it's also not good to be drunk and sleep deprived. No. I mean, I presume that if you was drunk and sleep deprived, you would probably just pass out. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a rap lyric that says, I'd never sleep because sleep is the cousin of death. Um, and that was another, uh, which was a good segue uh-huh. into another thing, which I thought was fascinating, right? Like this idea of a death doula. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I had heard about her, I think, through a podcast that um, I was listening to. And then I think, well, actually, my editor recommended, oh, what do you think about doing something on death doula? Um, and her story was really interesting as well, because she also used to be a lawyer. I used to be a lawyer. I have a thing for like talking to people who are ex-lawyers, because so many <laughs> of us don't end up staying there for long. Um, and she was saying that a lot of people, especially in America, death is this kind of like weird thing that no one really talks about and people are afraid of it. So she works with people who are scared of death and she does these death meditations, which is where I think, um, she takes you through what your body is apparently going through when you die. Um, but she also works with families who have a family member who are dying and they just need help to you know, sort out their affairs. Because there are things you don't, we don't really think about what happens when we die. It's like people now talk about, you know, what happens to your social media account, but there's things like, well, what happens to your bank account? What happens to your car registration? You know, who pays um, the bills that you haven't paid yet? And, you know, if you have a will, maybe that's all taken care of. But in a lot of instances, people don't have that. I'm worried about what's going to happen to my Tinder account. Your Tinder account. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure they they must have some sort of things in their terms and condition now. Right? Yeah. If, if yeah, you, uh, you owe them money if you if you die. Um, <laughs> we owe everyone money. Uh, why why that topic though? You know, uh, even as it relates to a fast company, where is it? Just the fact that it's a creative vertical to start a business in. Is it something that we should be thinking about and? It's a daunting thing that we could try to put away and, and avoid. Yeah, I mean, there are different fast company angles. I think in terms of the death aspect, uh, my colleague Rena Raphael recently did a piece on what's called the death, death wellness movement. And having a death doula is definitely a part of that. Um, you know, now Americans, even though I think that it is still a stigmatized topic, a lot of them are thinking more and more about how they want to die, like in terms of, you know, they don't want to die in the hospital, they want to die at home. So people are thinking about it, um, tend to be the wealthier who also want to live longer. So that that kind of aspect is definitely part of Fast Company because there's all these new businesses popping up because of the death wellness account. And from a work-life perspective, I mean, it's a job that a lot of people don't really understand and we like to, you know, show... Like part of work life is not just showing professional, traditional careers, but also people who change their careers for whatever reason. Um, And I think for me, what's interesting is uh, she chose this profession as a way to design the life that she wants as well. But it's not in an not in a conventional way, you know. Yeah. Like um, she uh, actually really enjoys what she does. A lot of people like when I 
interviewed her, I think um, one of the things that I thought about was, well, work-life balance must be really hard because you have to talk about death all the time. And then when I asked what the most stressful thing was, I got told that it was the running, the business aspect of it. It was like, I hate all the emails. I hate all the admin (laughs) stuff. (laughs) I mean, I know that no entrepreneur hates, you know, that part, but that wasn't what I was expecting. I was more expecting the kind of emotional toll. And so I think that that's really interesting because it's just a different way of pursuing, you know, it's a work-life balance that is not conventional. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think anybody who has a creative endeavor of any sort, once it becomes, once it goes from like side hustle to main hustle, the other things, the administrative, the business, the, mm-hmm. just the management of employees, like those become just new skill sets you need to develop. Yeah, exactly. Especially within a new vertical. Right? Yeah. Did you guys talk about that at all? In the, like as, as far as just getting clients and getting the word out and, you know. I think they've always existed. I feel like um, it's more that we're just seeing more and more of them now. And I think, um, yeah, I didn't really ask about how she got clients, but I th- it seemed from the conversation it was through word of mouth. Yeah. Because, you know, I think. I mean, it's an this, endless client base. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the well will not run dry. Do you have a death plan? Uh, I don't, don't actually, but it did get, it did make me think about how I should Well, let's, let's figure it out. I got a pen it. and a piece of paper. <laughs> let's just figure out <laughs> um, You know, I think the areas that you kind of focus on, I kind of summed up in this emotional intelligence space. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you shift from law <laughs> to, to this? Well, I had always actually been really interested in this kind of topic. So I went to law because I had very traditional Asian immigrant parents who, you know, I think it's very typical. It's like there's like three career paths, right? You can be a lawyer, a doctor, an accountant, and I could be an engineer or a banker as well. So maybe there's five rather than three. Um, I was living in New Zealand. And I think, you know, I was living in New Zealand where the media market is really small because we don't have a big population. We have like, we're like half of New York. Right. So there's like two publications I can work in. <laughs> um, so I just did law and I was like, okay, I'm just going to get this degree. At, you know, I'm not actually going to end up doing law, but I kind of got sucked into the legal profession because I got a summer clerkship, which is I um, usually internship that you get the year before you graduate. And they offered me an offer and it was kind of around just, it was, so I started university, I believe in 2008 and, you know, <laughs> recession (laughs) jobs weren't great I think the message that I got around my peers was that you're just lucky if you had a job so I kind of did that but two years I realized I can't do this for 50 years um and I was still at a point where I felt like I was young enough to start over and I'd always wanted to come to New York so I was like you know I'm just gonna go and apply for grad school see what happens and long story short that's how I got to Fast Company well, that that's kind of a death plan, right? I, I, a death plan. In, in a good way, though, because it's like you knew what you didn't want to do for yeah. a, a period of time. And I had the same thing. Like, I was an engineer, and I worked mm-hmm. at Chrysler after I graduated. And I was like, uh, this can't be it. Yeah. Right? And I, I find that as, and this is, you know, one of the, the, the uh, secrets of... Wow. Secrets. What's the show called? Secrets Se- of the Most Productive People. Thank you. I know it's, it's a handful. It is. A, it's, a, it's a mouthful. It is. Yeah. Um, but, you know, sort of that personal realization of what your true passion is. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that takes multiple iterations of self yeah. to to um, to see through. Uh, walk us through a little bit of that show and, you know, what types of things you've covered, what's been surprising to you. 
Yeah, sure. So Secrets of the Most Productive People is a show about productivity, as you can probably tell from the title. Um, The last two seasons, we've covered a lot around the personal development space and productivity. So that could be anything from sleep. I think that was actually our very first episode was about sleep because, as I said, every productivity-related thing centers on sleep. Um, Two other things, like, you know, we... um, talked about procrastination and how that affects the brain, Um, multitasking, things like, you know, willpower, mind of a matter, a lot of the stuff that productivity addicts just love. And like, I am a productivity addict. So (laughs) that was the stuff that I consume on a daily basis. So it was fun to pick the experts brains because um, we talked to experts who actually knew what they were talking about. And I got to try out some tips. But this season, we're focusing a lot more on the career aspect because our listeners were asking for it. So that's, um, you know, it's productivity, but in a different sense, because usually when people think of productivity, they usually, some of them do talk about it in their personal life, but it's usually about balancing their professional life and their work life. So I think it's really important. We felt like it was really important for us to cover that side of it as well. And it's something that Fast Company has covered for, you know, many, many years. So why not draw on to the many experts we've talked to and help our listeners that way? Uh, as you encounter these secrets, what sorts of guinea pigging have you done on yourself? Uh, so the very first one I did was about related to sleep. Um, I think at that time I was having trouble sleeping because I was anxious and stressed. And the sleep expert recommended, well, why don't you set aside a worry time? which I thought was a really interesting thing. So you dedicate a time where you're like, I'm allowed to worry. And the idea is that when you find these thoughts going into your head, you kind of not really push them aside, but you tell yourself, okay, I'm not allowed to worry about it now, but I have between like 4 and 4.30 to worry. (laughs) That's not bad. Yeah, and it was really interesting. Um, I think what I found was... It's, it's funny because when you actually make a plan to worry, when it gets to worry time, I was like, I don't want to spend 30 minutes worrying because I didn't, I did. You were worried about your worry time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I kind of experimented with different times. So the first one was when I went to the gym and I realized that when I'm working out, I'm not thinking about anything else because right. I'm like, I have to do this hill sprint and this weight is really heavy and that's what I'm focused on. And it was like, well, you know. I don't want to be worried when I'm at the gym because I can't. Like, I have to focus on something else. And then I think I, the time I switched, I tried switching it to my commute because I have a long commute anyway, and that tends to be when I'm stressed. But then I realized that when I actually said that it's a worry time, I'm like, I don't want to, like, spend, you know, 40 minutes worrying. Like, this is a waste of time. I could be listening to something uplifting instead. And so that was the takeaway from it wasn't the fact that my stress kind of went away but it being intentional about the fact that when I worry, I choose to worry was quite helpful. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think about that all the time. It's just like the things I need to put away. Like my worry time is 24 hours. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's have th- the majority of the things you worry about never happen. Right. So yeah, or it, it's there's, just a, like, there's a theory around that yeah. idea. Or it's just like, you know, I worry about stuff that I know is going to happen. Like, I worry about deadlines and getting everything done on time. And if I kind of look at my past action, it's like, well, there's no point in me stressing about this because I know it's going to get done. But, yeah, there are also aspects of kind of pointless worrying where you think about worst-case scenarios and and they never happen. Uh, One of the biggest worries most of us have is around finances. Mm -hmm. And you did a piece on financial therapy, Uh which I thought was really interesting because for a while I ran the innovation practice at at OMD. And Wells Fargo was one of our clients. 
and before they got themselves in a little bit of trouble, <laughs> we were taught, we were exploring this idea of like having a therapist in yeah. certain locations that you could go to. Because I mean, if you drink too much or if you, you know, if you're a sex addict or if you're going through relationship issues, mm-hmm. there's all sorts of very specific therapy you can go to. Yeah. But when it comes to money, it's like, oh, just save some and, you know, like. Don't buy coffee. Right. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, I tried that. Uh, yeah. So what, what did you what did you learn, you know, in that sort of uh, exploration? Well, it was really interesting because that piece really came about. I had always been interested in the intersection of money and emotions. I think um, we only really just started covering personal finance recently when we rebranded from leadership to work life because we used to kind of focus more on like workplace stuff. And then now since we kind of rebranded with them both, it's money is such a huge part of why people make career decisions and personal decisions. And But I had always been really fascinated with the intersection of money and emotions because if you look at how people become wealthy, you know, people come be- people become wealthy from all sorts of backgrounds. Like they could be really poor or they could be generational wealth. And a lot of it has to do with the choices they make with money and your choices are influenced by your emotions. And I think just having conversations about people around how they feel about money kind of made me realize how much of it is rooted in emotions. I mean, even just a spend, if you think about, you know, why you spend money, I'm sure it's rooted in some sort of emotion. A lot of purchases we make is because we don't feel like we're good enough, which is really sad. I just got <laughs> in trouble for buying a pair of sneakers. My wife was like, another new pair? And I was like, uh, well, <laughs> I need to feel good about myself. Um, well, I actually, that's why um, I have an, what I call an impulse budget. And so, you know, something like that would be under the impulse budget. And because I know that I'm like, there's going to be a time when I have a bad day and maybe I'm going to end up buying, you know, a new pair of sneakers. What was the last thing you got with your impulse budget? Uh, I think it was a lipstick. Oh, it looks good. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so the financial therapy piece was really just looking at why people, you know, I was kind of fascinated in terms of, how people when people decided that this was something that they needed and how they even got to be you know a financial therapist in the first place because it does really require you to have a very specific knowledge like you i know so these people are not investment advisors so they're not telling you sure. where you should you know put your 401k or what index funds you should invest in or you know what mutual Which funds also to. for me creates worry yeah. <laughs> um, so, but they just really focus specifically on y- the emotional root of money. Um, a lot of them work with couples, which I find really interesting because money is also a huge, you know, source of conflict within a lot of couples. And I think one, like of one of the top number, reasons yeah. for divorce, yeah. um, which also half half the time stems from the fact that they talk they don't, they don't talk about it. Right? You kind of have an assumption of how money should be spent. But if the other person has a different assumption and you don't talk about it, like if one person is a, you know, is a hoarder and the other person is a spender yeah. and you don't really talk about, you know, how that works, then it's going to create conflict and you're just going to be like, but why can't they see it my way? Well, we took we took a, a relationship class and one of the things they talk about was like a nerd. There's, in every relationship, there's a nerd and there's a free spirit. And so Interesting. you have to allow each one to sort of like that creative negotiation between how much of a nerd of a couple are we going to be and like spend and I mean not mm-hmm. spend and be financially responsible and the free spirit is like oh yeah there's a concert happening tomorrow the tickets are only 300 bucks let's go you're like well yeah yeah, yeah. um and I, I still haven't figured out which one am I but um yeah I, that's really interesting yeah um I mean do you know what your wife is because I was just thinking about my husband I think she's I more uh, the nerd right uh, out of the, the two I mean I think we both exhibit each trait yeah but she like literally I was at the airport coming here, 
um, I got a coffee from Starbucks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and when I landed, I had a text message that said, don't use debit card. Oh my God. <laughs> I was like, all right, fine. Um, but so I, I think, but you're talking about that, that idea of communication, right? Uh -huh. um, and I think all of this stuff, you know, when I look at it through a fast company lens, I think about is creating more creative freedom. Yeah. Right. These emotionally intelligent practices kind of just free you up to be your best, you know, innovative self. Yeah. And I mean, the way that I think about it um, and, you know, not everyone agrees with me, but I think in work life, we write a lot about systems. I actually find that systems and being disciplined with certain stuff creates freedom. And, you know, the same with kind of with money specifically. It's not about, you know, exercising willpower every time you want to buy a coffee or a new pair of sneakers or whatever it is you want to buy. It's about kind of having a system where it's like, you know how much you can spend and still meet your financial goals. So it's just even little habits like automating your savings account. If you have an investment account, making sure that, you know, a certain percentage of that goes through, you know, to that to those accounts. Um, and I think that then that frees up the time. You don't have to think about it. And so your brain power is freed to do all the things that are actually more important to you. Being a young woman of very multicultural experience, <laughs> um, and you mentioned immigrant parents and the mm -hmm. whole, not like, what's your emotional relationship with money? Um, yeah, that's really interesting. I feel like it's changed because I'm still kind of investigating Bowling. it, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, I'm still investigating it. Like, I mean, I, I grew up, I would say, my parents actually talked about money. So that was also very different. You said they always talked about it or they... No, didn't? they actually did talk uh, about yeah. it. Although there were certain aspects that were off limits, like um, around kind of when it comes to like amounts. But they talked about kind of how we should manage my money. My dad's a property developer, so he's always like harping on about the importance of investing and all of that stuff, which I felt was very different from a lot of households. I know a lot of households just don't talk about money at right. all. Um, and I think that I feel like this is a lot of immigrant mentality is... Um, you take care of yourself. Like, I think usually immigrants tend to not be trustful, you know, don't really trust the government. We originally came from Indonesia. <laughs> yeah. Where, like, you do definitely do not want to trust the government to take care of you. I think you, that's so. universal, though. <laughs> it is universal, but I feel like it's more extreme in, like, right. others. Like, I think when I came to Western country, I mean, New Zealand is very different from the US, and I don't really want to get all political, but I feel like there is kind of still a base expectation that the government will take care of you, you know, to some aspect, whereas I feel like a lot of immigrant families just would not have that expectation. It's like you just can't rely on them for anything. And so I feel like definitely that's the mentality that I have. I think kind of where I still f don't really know is, I mean, there's this whole thing around whether you have a scarce mental, uh, you know, mentality to money and, or an abundant mentality to money, right? Because I feel like um, my dad's an entrepreneur, so um, I felt like the idea that I got was that you should focus on making more money rather than like, you know, well, you should save, mm -hmm. but your focus should always be on how can you make more money? Like, you know, if you are in a tight situation, it's like, okay, is, is there any other activities you can do to increase your income? Yeah. Um, which is really super helpful. And I think that, you know, I know a lot of entrepreneurs think like this, but I feel like it's helpful for people who are, who are employees as well, because it does force you to get creative. But I did notice that um, when I started managing money and I was, I was, very very kind of strict with my budgeting and i would kind of like start counting pennies in a way because <laughs> um i don't know why like i think i think when i kind of when i left college and had you know was 
paying for everything on my own, I felt like I went the other way. And so I feel like I shift depending on what money situation I am in. Like if I'm comfortable, then I feel like I have a healthy healthy um, attitude towards money. But if it does get to the point where I'm not comfortable, then I do kind of freak out a little bit. And yeah. then I start being like, okay, just slash <laughs> like, my spending. Well, it's like, it, like once we get, like it's when you're getting in trouble. It's like when you start praying, right? It's, yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. It's like, oh, please God, if you, I know. if you get me through this one, I'll go to church every Sunday. I'll <laughs> be um, like, ah, okay. Maybe every other Sunday. Um, so in, in another vertical, I saw on Twitter, you had a call to action. You're like, uh, you said, if you've had an internship. Yes. Uh, so I'm still writing about that. So and it's called hell on earth. <laughs> I know. Um, but I like these calls to action. What is, what's come in so far? Um, actually I have to get my inbox cause it was just oh. recently. <laughs> ah, <laughs> nice. Um, what are you, so kind of give us a little bit of a tease on what that piece is going to yeah, to, so um, we're doing a pack. Um, we're doing kind of like an internship package in the work life, and it's just looking at all different aspects in terms of you know. There's been a lot of talks around um, you know whether or not in- unpaid internship specifically is kind of exacerbating income inequality because usually in unpaid internships are very expensive. It's, they're usually located in like New York, DC, Chicago, LA, one of the urban centers where it's not cheap to live. Um, and then as a, and usually the kind of people that can afford to take them already have financial support. And so that's one aspect of it. The one that I'm looking at it in, is in terms of whether it's actually effective in preparing you for, preparing you for real life. Cause there's kind of two kinds of internships. I feel there's one where, um, you know, you don't really, okay, maybe more than maybe three, one where you don't really do anything and you don't really know what you're doing <laughs> when you are sitting there. I think it's me every day. <laughs> I think I'm still an intern. I have no idea what I'm doing. I mean, that's, I feel like this growing up, right? You realize you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> um, the second one is, you know, you get schmoozed and you don't actually, you do work, you do interesting work, but you don't really get exposed to the actual hours and um, stress. And I feel like, I felt like this with law and I know that that's the same with banking and consulting because they really do schmooze you and think that it's going to be great. And then it's your yeah. first year and it's like, all right, <laughs> um, good luck. And then I think the third one is where um, a lot of where I, the one that I'm looking at is businesses who've kind of used it to, and they might not have intentionally meant it like this, but it's just created the system where it's, in a, it's they're essentially doing a job, but they're not getting paid for it. And so that's where I'm looking at is where, right. um, you know, people have had an internship and it actually is a full-time job. They have all these responsibilities because I think sometimes it can be framed as, oh, this is good experience. And, you know, to an extent, I feel like I get the whole thing about paying your dues, I, but there is a diminishing returns when you get up to a point when, you know, you actually become valuable to the company because you're providing free labor for them right. and they're not paying for it. That's I wonder, it I wonder if area. that sort of sets some people off on a certain trajectory trajectory in their emotional connection to the work yeah so where you keep doing things for the resume and for the experience and yeah. not for the passion or for the exchange and not realizing that you're actually adding value uh, yeah because i can think to moments later in my career where i was like oh i need to do this because it'll look you know mm-hmm. it's the resume builder as opposed to just approaching it from a, a just a, a more emotionally connected angle yeah i think um especially one of the things that i really wish is taught in college is this idea about kind of understanding your value and that seeing yourself you know when you're a candidate as and have kind of attaching i don't really like seeing it as a good because it's 
when you say it's a price you put on yourself, right. <laughs> you know, it's right. like humans obviously not good, but it's kind of is like that. It's like a company is hiring you to because they they see that you can add some sort of value. And I feel like when you're young, the the kind of message that you get is, oh, you should just be lucky to get a job. It's all about getting the experience. But I think when you think about that too, when you think about that for too long, it is really hard to kind of shift your mindset when you are adding value and being like, wait a minute, am I actually getting what I'm worth yeah. in the market? Yeah. And I think that that's not, that's something that some people kind of have naturally or because their parents taught them to do it or like their <laughs> friends taught them to yeah. do it. But a lot of people don't, they, they just kind of think, okay, I'm here. And there's also why a lot of people don't negotiate their salaries. Oh yeah. But yeah. It, it's so much like you, you know, um, you're, Perception of self yeah. is is more it morphs over time. Mm-hmm. Um, as we wind down, um, oh, relevant humble brag. Okay, is that um, I spoke at PayPal's intern summit. Cool. So they had like three hundred interns in San Jose, and mm-hmm. then there's another um, forty or fifty in the East Coast. And so there was a lot of really interesting stats around their particular internship program. Mm-hmm. Um, they, so they take everybody who's west of the Mississippi to San Jose to the headquarters for three days and they do all sorts of activities. Um, and one of the interesting f- statistics there was that I think it was like somewhere between 60 and 70 percent of the they have a, like that's their retention rate. So wow. either they come back to work for the company or they come back and do a second internship because whether they're junior and then they go into their senior year or mm-hmm. they're senior and they graduate and come and work there. Um, and so I'll not, I don't want to give your story away, but I do think there's some of that, like the responsibility of the organization as well to figure out how can we best empower these individuals. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think not, unfortunately, I feel like, you know, with a big organization like PayPal, they have the resources and the systems to think about that. But a lot of small, smaller businesses, I get it. It's a lot of work. So that's kind of what I'm hoping to look at as well. It's just yeah. the difference between what it's like when you are in a big company and you have a lot of support systems and a path. And there's a clear benefit to them having a lot of intern because these people kind of act as, you know, ambassadors for the brand as well. Right. Whereas in a smaller company, it's a little bit different. It's usually they hire an intern because they need someone to do something. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, you know, but I, 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 not, again, not to encroach on your territory, but that idea of let's be mindful in designing the role. Yeah, right? yeah and, exactly. And sure, like refill the pins and the coffee, but also I understand what your needs are and how we can benefit your career goals. Yeah, at this yeah. Um, most excited thing you have on your, like what are you most excited about? coming up um well i am excited to write about the intern story Mm -hmm. (laughs) um i have a couple of personal finance related stories in the works that i am really excited about looking at so um looking into kind of what is considered luxury and necessities and how that's different between men and women is very fascinating Mm. um and i'm also most excited to talk about um yeah and i'm really excited also to talk more about careers on the seasons of secret of the most productive on, see, I can't even pronounce <laughs> see, my own podcast. I thought, I thought it was just me. I thought it was my sleep deprivation. Yeah. But. Um, yeah, I'm excited about talking more about digging more into careers um, and helping our listeners figure out their career questions and issues on secrets of the most productive people as well. All right. Uh, thank you. 
Thank you. I can't wait till we do this again. Yeah, Did me I, too. It, was it bothersome or was it was it? No, no. Fun? And uh, you know, I'm very impressed you managed to pronounce my name. That's that's brandy points. I, for I won't me. do it again. <laughs> Goodbye, Anita. You, you only need to. Do it once. <laughs> All right, bye. Thanks right, for thank having you guys. me. We'll see you and talk to you next time. <laughs>